and our intro comes in. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Not Your Father's second ever Aftermath episode. I'm Mike. I'm Jesse. And I'm Lenny. And we are some dad fathers coming at you with some very big Aftermath dad energy. Aftermath dad energy. And here we are. We're at the end of our Not Your Grandfather's Courtroom series. We've covered three storied epic movies here. Twelve Angry Men, A Man for All Seasons, and To Kill a Mockingbird, and one honorable, dishonorable, maybe just a mention, Aaron Sorkin's new movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7. It's lumping in here because it's about the 60s. All these movies were made in the 60s, and we just did it, so we figured it would be a good one to, to include in this episode. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I know, Letney, you, you were with us on that episode, uh, and, and you had a lot more love for it than I did. Um, so what what do you say? Is it an honorable mention here? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I listened to the episodes on um, uh, A Man for All Seasons and To Kill Mockingbird and going back over uh, 12 Angry Men. It really doesn't hold up in comparison um, yeah. in my mind. <laughs> so I think it has a lot of merit, but it's not in the same league at all. So That's awesome. I, I, think, I think we feel the same way. Um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, these are big movies with some big themes. There's a lot of plot and inevitably we miss something here or there, just a little thing here or there. So this episode, these aftermath episodes, the purpose of them is to kind of make sure we've gotten everything out that we wanted to kind of clarify or change things that we said and finally kind of tie our series together, tie these movies together, talk about sort of what we've learned, what has sort of grown as we've come to this uh, later in life than, than the last time we watched them and sort of re- really talk about some big picture themes. Um, so that's why we're doing it here. Before we jump into that, though, I want a couple of housekeeping items. Um, unfortunately, Vito is not with us tonight. He, it's a huge bummer. Kind of feel a little weird without him because this is really his thing. Like this is this is something that he got us uh, all all into. I know uh, Vito's brought me into a new love of movies. And so uh, doing this podcast with him has been just a blast and a half. And, and to, to do this without him is uh, kind of a bummer. But he will be back next week. Um, and he's, uh, he's, he's going to be here for our very special next episode, which will be a big one. Right, Jesse? I think it'll be pretty big. Um, but we're definitely not going to do it with, without Vito. We, we can't do it alone and we can't yeah. be home to do it because <laughs> it's home alone. Uh-huh. It's home alone, guys. <laughs> it's home alone. I guess we're spoiling it. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it is a huge bummer that Vito isn't here. He's kind of like, um, you know, he's kind of like a giant octopus with his little tentacles. He, <laughs> he reaches out and grabs people and sucks them in, brings them to his little podcast layer. And that's why we're all kind of here. Um, actually, uh, that's also the reason why he can't join us. Uh, there's some surgery involved. Um, uh, he doesn't just have metaphorical tentacles. He has physical tentacles growing all over his body. 
Um, and then there's... It's, it's, it's pretty cool, actually. I, I don't really know why he, he's getting any of them removed, but I guess I guess he, he wants to go with six. Is it, was it six? He wanted to get two of them chopped off? Uh, or, or it, I think it was 2,000 of them. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> he, yeah, he doesn't show you all the little ones that he has. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I want to see those. <laughs> Uh, also but, tonight we have the return of Tony, Tony Letney. Thank you for coming on again, Tony. Really appreciate it. At this point, you're basically a member of the um, of the octopus layer that is Vito's <laughs> podcast world. I guess <laughs> it's getting getting neat. Um, this is the third of the not your grandfather's or of the courtroom series. Let's just call it the courtroom series that we've done so far with you. You are on for Twelve Angry Men. You were on for Trial of the Chicago 7, and you actually listened to both of the other ones, both uh, Man for All Seasons and To Kill a Mockingbird, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love doing it. It's so much fun. Um, and because you've listened to us, uh, to the other ones, you can hammer us on the things that, that we get wrong, like like adding plurals when there aren't any and that sort of thing. <laughs> great. <laughs> Uh, so with that, with that all uh, kind of out of the way, I, I, let's uh, let's let's get into it. I mean, I I, I don't know, Jesse. Um, let's let's start off. Let's let's start off. Can you summarize all four of these movies, everything about them? <laughs> in, uh, I mean, all, the whole movies in, in one segment. We've got we've got all the time in the world here. So let's go. Trial of Chicago Seven. All right. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'll try to do one word summaries. Trial of Chicago Seven, riots. Um, and it was quite a riot to watch it. That's <laughs> more than one word. <laughs> well, you know, riot, that was one word, but I feel like it had to be expounded upon. Uh, okay. So with Chicago seven, uh, let me really likes it. Us three didn't, we had some issues, but overall, I think we all thought it was an entertaining movie. Um, I think, Letney, you gave it a 4.25 out of 5 stars as a new release. Um, and then Vito and Mike, you guys gave it 3, and I gave it 2.5. And, and I would actually like to amend that part. I Thinking back to it, I don't think it deserves 2.5. I think it deserves a 3. I'm going to join the 3-star the crowd. Okay. You know, it was an enjoyable movie. Um, I... The thing is, I really enjoyed watching it, um, but I think it was because in 2020 I've seen riots, I've seen protests, and so it really bothered me that there were historical inaccuracies that I found out about the movie later. Um, so I realized that I had a stronger emotional reaction to it than I probably should have, and I think that impacted my view on the movie negatively. But at the end of the day, whenever I think about this movie, it's so much fun. I would watch it. I think I'll definitely watch this movie again. It's so much fun to just sit down and watch some riots happen around you. <laughs> That's awesome. What, what about you, Lenny? Are, are you still in the four star club for, for trial of the Chicago seven? Um, may, maybe a little lower, maybe, maybe a three, three, seven, five or something. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> what, are, what are these increments? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think maybe I've kind of the opposite reaction of Jesse where, you know, Jesse, you said that there's certain things you read that turned you off to the movie. Um, and to me, I think there's, there's certain aspects of the movie that 
um, that I really enjoyed that, that, you know, made me give it higher praise than it deserves as a whole. Um, I'm thinking specifically like about the, you know, especially just writing the trailer, um, kind of the percussive nature of that and the chanting and, um, I don't know, it just, it hits me in the feels. Um, uh, I definitely, I think I'm giving it too much credit, uh, but I did enjoy it a lot. Yeah. That's cool. It, it wraps your, its tentacles around you the same way Vito does. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's funny. I, so I was, um, I was talking with my wife about it and I was like, you know, a, a month later, I feel like I, I actually want to give this two and a half stars. I want to bring it down to, cause two and a half, two and a half out of five is, is straight average, right? It's, it's half. Um, and the reason why I was talking about it with my wife and I was like, you know what? I just feel kind of confused about it. I, I'm not really sure. I don't remember very much about the movie at this point. I've got a bad memory, but, um, it, it, she, but she was like, you know, really, is that, is that the case? When you were, when you were watching, you said, I feel like I haven't taken a breath this whole time. Um, every time we got up because, you know, we had to pause it to go to the bathroom or get water or whatever. That's true. It was a ton of fun to watch, but the, the further away I get from it, the more the historical accuracies kind of annoy me, um, especially, you know, uh, Bobby um, and the way they, they, they dealt with that. Kind of the lack of a clear, um, I don't know, protagonist, antagonist. Uh, there, there, I mean, there are clear protagonists and antagonists. There are clear sides, but within those sides, it's very unclear who's doing what. It doesn't have a specific person that I'm uh, that I'm rooting for, um, and maybe that's something that that I want to talk about a little bit more later when we get into general themes here. But I, I'm actually going to lower my uh, my rating a little bit as well to to two and a half stars. That's me. That's interesting. Um, yeah, it, it's funny with uh, with Trials of Chicago Seven. Um, well, with Aaron Sorkin, who's the writer and director of Trial, right? Um, uh, I recently started watching a series of videos called his, it's his master class where he teaches a class on screenwriting. Cool. Basically his number one principle is when you write a script, you need to have intention and obstacle um, where the writer, where um, the protagonist clearly states his intention. And then there's a clear obstacle to overcome. Um, and with all these courtroom movies, I guess I was seeing that. And then the more I thought about trial of Chicago seven, the more, I was realizing part of the reason why I don't like the movie is because I don't think he follows his own principle very clearly. Like, yeah. I, I don't really know what their intentions are. And it seems like the obstacle is at first the trial and then somehow it's not, it's people's inner motivations. Like Tom Hayden, I think he's the protagonist and he's the one who has to overcome himself, but it's kind of unclear what they end up overcoming and what the victory is. Um, I think we talked about it on the podcast and stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's ultimately about, about protesting. I think you would say, um, but it was just strange the way they, the way they presented it. I did actually have one other little question. Uh, just thinking about rating systems. Uh, maybe, maybe this is something to get into later, mm -hmm. but do you guys have a quick star rating just for comparison for the other three movies? Okay. Well, for me, 12 Angry Men and A Man for All Seasons is a straight five. And To Kill a Mockingbird is 4.25, I guess. <laughs> uh, no, maybe four and a half. Yeah. I'd, um, I'd say, yeah, same. 12, 12 Angry Men and A Man for All Seasons are both straight fives. To Kill a Mockingbird, um, I've, 
I've seen this like multiple times throughout my life, a ton of times. Um, and it's flipped from four to five almost every time I've seen it from four to five and back to four almost every time. This last time I saw it, it really hit home. And, and I was, I thought it was a five, but I remember, you know, seven or eight years ago when I saw it, I was like, ah, this isn't, this is just a four. There's some very clear guidelines for you there, Letney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and nor- to be honest, we normally don't do like star ratings because we're talking about dad movies, which is a much harder, you know, yeah. uh, measure yeah, yeah. To, to really gauge by. Um, it, it's also the greatest Laurel a movie could achieve, you know, is, is getting that dad <laughs> movie rating <laughs> from us. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've we've put Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2 on the same level as 12 Angry Men and A Man for All Seasons and To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Basically um, the same movie, so, you know. Yeah. Uh, we're not we're not dealing with how great the acting is, or we're not trying to be critics so much. We're just trying to, you know, talk about dad movies. But but thanks for the question, and but yeah, that that's my answer: four point two five for To Kill a Mockingbird and five for the rest, and then a fluctuating five four for Mike for To Kill a Mockingbird. So uh, the next movie on the list is Twelve Angry Men. Uh, so that starts out our not your grandfather's. Uh, court courtroom drama trilogy, and there we go. We all love Twelve Angry Men. I, as you just heard, we made it five stars. Definitely a dad movie. Uh, I I stand by most of what I said, except except uh, there's this part where we talk about who plays what juror, right? And I mentioned Meryl Streep. Um, so what you don't hear in the podcast is that I cut out a lot of what I said. Uh, because, okay, to be honest, this whole trilogy, we had tons of issues, both audio issues that made me personally kind of angry and kind of flustered. So I, I mentioned Meryl Streep, and then I go on to insult her. <laughs> I insult her pretty badly. <laughs> um, but I didn't mean to, so we cut that out. So uh, I just want to clarify... Uh, and add on to what I said about what what I mean when I say Meryl Streep should play the old man juror. So when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about um, uh, the old man in 12 Angry Men says that he's about 75 years old, right? And it occurred to me that we have uh, or we had two presidential candidates who were around 75 and had no problem getting attention for themselves, which is part of that character's like main motivation for talking, right? He's never been heard before, and he has to speak up. So um, to be honest, just thinking of like an older dude saying, I've never been heard or listened to before, I'm n- I know that happens, but I just don't find it as convincing in today's culture. Um so what I was thinking about is what if it was an older woman who instead of instead of getting a career, maybe married young and then probably divorced. And then she's never been in a meeting before. Right. She enters the scene um, and she's timid because she hasn't been here before, but she's so full of life and and so full of opinions and wants to say those. And for that particular kind of character i think meryl streep would nail and, i see uh, it yeah yeah i can see what you're saying I, I don't know if i 
if I agree with Meryl Streep exactly, but I definitely get the uh, get the idea for sure. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. it makes a lot more yeah, sense than uh, what I originally said. <laughs> which you didn't say because it wasn't on the podcast. Which I did. Which you know, <laughs> it, it, it never made it to the internet, so that's good. <laughs> exactly. The one, the, I think the one thing, um, okay, I've got two things that I wanted to say about this one. And the first was, um, we didn't really talk a lot about juror number seven. Um, I like, I really like that guy in a lot of ways. He's a horrible, he's, he's the guy who has the baseball tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, we kept saying he had baseball cards. He had baseball tickets. He was going to a game. <laughs> he wasn't trading cards, um, which... <laughs> You know, that, that I just listened to, to to the episode. I was like, oh, my gosh, how like we kept saying cards. Um, but I, I yeah, I thought he was a really cool character. Um, kind of the way they 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 flesh him out and the way you kind of learn about him through sort of he seems like the good old boy or whatever. He's like a good guy. Um, he's a hard worker. He's kind of like he's funny. You kind of like him when you first meet him. But by the end of the of of the movie, like you you detest that guy. He's horrible. He has become uh, really the worst guy there. He's worse than Ed Begley's character. You know, he's he's worse than um, he, he's worse than the angry father because he has uh, he he's had his moment of confrontation with himself, and he's chosen not to confront himself. He's chosen nah, nothing matters. I'm I'm out of here. Which which was really cool. I thought that that was a, a you know, in that in that movie, which is about contrasting so many different uh, people who are exp- like looking themselves in the face for the you know the first time in a long time as middle aged men, um, it was really cool to see to see that character um, mm-hmm. and that that contrast with the other guys. Um, yeah, um, yeah, that character is especially terrifying because if you think about like all of our other courtroom movies there's always a jury and um and they always come back with the guilty verdict um and i can't help but think that all those juries are just filled with juror number sevens like yeah through and through with like one ed bagley in there yeah and, and they, they don't have just, henry fonda yeah no henry fonda so yeah that juror number seven is is the worst because he just wants to get in and out what does everybody think all right i'm gonna say that too i'm out sorry um I was just going to say, that's a cool insight because uh, one of the things that I was thinking about this movie is that uh, thinking about kind of the the tone of the movie, it seems like it's almost naively hopeful that these 12 men, most of them come in with some kind of bias or prejudice. And over the course of an afternoon conversation, they completely overcome their biases or their racism or whatever. So it is interesting that there's that other character who kind of fails in that respect. Do you think it's naively, like naively hopeful? I mean, really I think it's drama, right? So yeah. art oh, has yeah. to exaggerate and compress everything. Uh, but it does seem a little unrealistic to me that, you know, a deeply racist person would overcome it, you know, in a single that's instant. That's true. That's yeah. true. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, that that's for sure. That that all of these people within this time frame of not that many hours. I mean, it's a long time in a hot room, but not that many hours. Like that they overcome their deepest deep-seated issues like yeah that's not really going to happen but that they would overcome their difficulty about the situation do you think that that's naively hopeful that they would flip from mostly being 
uh, guilty verdict to mostly being uh, uh, not guilty? I mean, maybe naive is a little strong, but I, I do think it's it's a, a little unrealistically dramatic change. That I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit last time. Yeah, but, yeah, we did, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, people don't really, you know, people now are not too dissimilar from people back then. And, you know, our experience seems to be that people rarely change their mind, at least not not when they're confronted with something, maybe it happens later more quietly. So unless it was a different kind of people back then, you know, it seems like and it's art again, it's art. So it's, it is compressed and it is dramatized. So I think it's, it's, it's definitely beautiful and helpful as a story. Um, it just doesn't seem that true to, to life in, in that compressed aspect. Yeah. Lenny, I agree with you that it is, um, that it's still over overly dramatized and definitely too short, right? The, that conversation would should have taken place over days. And that I think would be a more realistic setting is instead of an afternoon, it's the jurors keep on coming back, having this argument and then leave because that, as far as I know, uh, for difficult cases, that's how juries actually work. And you know, the thing is people do change their mind. It just, it does take a while. Like you're saying though. I think also, I mean, I don't know. I, I think a lot of what we see of people not changing their mind is um, I don't know, Facebook arguments where it, what's at stake isn't much. It's just, you know, whether or not I feel right um, or feel like other people think I'm right. I, I think um, that's a really broad statement about a lot of people. And so people don't change their mind, but, but I think, what's kind of um, specific to this situation is the fact that Henry Fonda is able to, to make them realize like, Hey, this is a guy's life. Like let's give him an hour of our time. And I think when people are confronted with serious, serious questions like that, they do take a minute to hold up and be like, okay, okay. Like what, like, am I really willing to send this guy to, to the death penalty? I don't know. Maybe I'm naively hopeful. Maybe we all should be to some degree. Maybe that'll make you a Henry Fonda when you finally get on jury. Yeah, maybe we all may we all be Henry Fonda one day. Maybe I'll be Henry Fonda and a man for all seasons, which is our yeah. next movie. <laughs> uh, so, a man for all seasons is our the second in the trilogy. We called it amazing and great. I I. I stand by everything I said, I think. Yeah. I called it a dad movie. So yeah, I stand by everything I said. How about you, Mike? Yeah. I, I, I do stand by everything that, that I said. Um, but there's one thing that I think was, was it in this one that we talked about the longest day or was it in, uh, to kill? Yeah. It was in this one that we talked about to the longest day and no, wait, was it this one or, or to kill a mockingbird? Jesse. It was to kill a mockingbird. Okay, never mind. I'll, I'll yeah. wait until the next section. Um, <laughs> me, I, I wanted to ask you have you have you seen have you seen this movie? Oh yeah, many times. Yeah, yeah, one of my favorites. Cool. Is, is it a dad movie in your book? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's I mean, awesome. I, I probably watched it with my dad for the first time. Yeah, yeah. What what is if you had to choose? Like, are there any line? Like, is there a favorite line that you have in that movie? You're like, this is the best line. I'm obviously going to butcher it, uh, but there is one part where he's talking to his son-in-law about uh, his son-in-law wants him to go arrest the guy who's a spy. 
he has this whole speech about how, you know, would you cut down all the laws in England to get after the devil? And then he says something about how, you know, and then when you've cut down all the laws, you turn around, the devil turns around and faces you. Where would you, where would you stand then? The laws all being flat. I just, I, I'm butchering it, but I love that, that whole speech. Dude, it's so cool. And he, oh man, Paul Schofield just like delivers it with such intense fury, but like constrained too. It's awesome. It's awesome. And Roper is like, uh, all right, you're my father-in-law. Like, it's so great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that quote is incredible. In some ways that it changes the way I, I see politics sometimes, just thinking of that quote. I'm thinking of, you know, with so many people railing against corrupt systems, which there definitely are, and Sir Thomas More is in one, uh, for him to say that you shouldn't cut down every law for your own protection is such a, it's it's kind of a profound idea and a unique one. Yeah. You know, I, I actually, um, the, the one thing that I did note that we didn't really talk about in this is that, and this was the first time I, I noticed the line before, but um, at, at one point Thomas says when, I think it's Thomas that says this. Yeah, no, it's Thomas. Um, he says, when statesmen forget their own private conscience for their public duties, they plunge their countries into chaos. So in that line, it's, it almost seems like he's advocating for, for the opposite. Or it, it could it could appear that way. These these seem like contrasting lines, right? Because the one um, the one that you're talking about is like, no, you have to follow the law. You have to do all of this. But here he's saying that for a statesman, they also have to, while well, they have to follow the law and everything, they cannot forsake their private conscience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which I mean, like that. I think that aligns very much with the the theme of the movie, right? That's that's what he does. That's why he dies, and and. Uh, we talked about the the timeliness of this movie, how it came out during um, like the draft burnings and or the draft the draft card burnings and, and all that and the the conscientious objector and, and, and all of that stuff. But it, it's interesting to have these together because he's advocating for conscientious object, objection, but also for not sort of breaking all the laws in England to get what you want. I don't know. What, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, it seems like on the one hand, in that that quote I was talking about, it seems like he is making a, a specific point about about how the 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 structure of of, of laws and, and government is beneficial in and of itself, just as a structure. Uh, but it also seems like he's maybe making a larger point about uh, just ends not justifying the means. That you know you can't you can't blindly pursue good, you know, no matter what the consequences yeah. are. Yeah, it's really cool that he's able, he's one of the few people that I can even think of who's able to straddle that line between following your conscience and still uphold laws without trying to tear everything around you down. And actually, there is one thing I wanted to bring up with The Man for All Seasons. So Vito started talking about the movie Lincoln, which I hadn't thought about in years. And the first time I saw Lincoln, I had the opposite reaction to the first time I saw Man for All Seasons. When I saw Man for All Seasons, I thought he was kind of questionable. But when I saw Lincoln, I was like all for him, right? But the more I started thinking about it, and I'm going to butcher the sign because I haven't seen Lincoln in years. Um, But he starts talking about how Lincoln gets angry and starts saying that he's robed in power. He should be able to do whatever he wants, basically. I thought about that the more that that didn't sit well with me. And I realized now the reason why that doesn't sit well with me is for that same quote that uh, you just brought up, Letney, with, uh, you know, like he's trying to cut the devil down 
in that scene, right? And he's saying, I should be able to do whatever it takes to do that. And uh, Sir Thomas gives a good reason for why why no one should ever, ever say or act on that. And I don't think Lincoln does in the movie. He ends up doing it ends up doing it all through lawful means. But yeah, that's why that's why I've thought Lincoln is a little bit of a questionable character, but still ultimately a good one. That's the only thing I will change from what I said in the in the previous podcast. That's really cool, Jesse. I haven't thought about that line in years. I love I, I thought that movie was amazing. Like just absolutely fantastic the way it captured Lincoln. Um and, oh, yeah. and that, like, like that he was a conflicted person. Uh he was a person. Like that's that's just amazing. Well, I I think we've covered I think we've covered a man for all seasons then. So let's move on to uh to kill a mockingbird. Um which we all really liked. Uh I was the only one who had some reservations because again, I find the beginning of the movie boring. I'll stand by that. I still think it's boring. Uh, you're <laughs> wrong. It's amazing. You're just wrong. I, I just <laughs> Uh, the kids running around, their kids, and then once it comes to an angry mob trying to kill the guy in prison, trying to kill Tom Robinson in prison, like that is when it becomes electrifying. And before then, I, I just I don't care. But I'll stand by everything else I said as well. <laughs> okay, um, dude, I, I I totally disagree with you. I mean, you're 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 entitled to be wrong. That's fine. Um, but. <laughs> I love this movie. I, I love I love the first half of this movie so much. It's so it's peaceful and it's calm while these kids are sort of beginning to confront the realities of life. You've got Scout going off to school and and she's confronting like um, the the fact that uh, you have to be compassionate and and so much of that that first that first I don't know forty five minutes hour is about building up this idea of comp- the need for compassion the need for recognizing the outcasts of society in, in the movie until uh, you get to the moment where, you know, both, both Scout and Jem realize that in, in a lot of ways, everyone, everyone is an outcast of society, that everyone is isolated and, and that the only way to break that isolation is through, um, is through compassion and, and doing well for do, doing good for those around you. I mean, I, I don't think you can have a good second half without that first half. And, and I, I just love watching kids running, running around being kids. Like, like when they spit on the on the fence so that you know it doesn't creep. <laughs> like, oh man, I did that. You know, like that's like these are I don't know seminal sort of images in my mind of, uh, of being a kid running around. Lenny, you've seen this as well, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with you about the first half. I mean, I think. There's definitely just this that that joyful you know childhood aspect to it, but I think it's also kind of an ultimate dad movie because it seems like that first half of the movie is really like a clinic in fatherhood. You know, it's like the like life lesson after life lesson just handed down um, in just the perfect perfect way um, yeah. about you know how you treat others and, and how you um, show compassion and respect for other people and, and dignity. You know, it seems like dignity is is really important uh, to Gregory Peck. And the way, and added to that, the way the way he um, the way he shows that he he considers like the dignity of his own children, like he treats them as if they have dignity. It, it on on top of like actually teaching them like specific life lessons about how to treat other people. It's also a, a lesson of, I think, a really good father um, treating his children well, and and that's 
that's cool as well. Um, yeah, honestly, I agree with everything you guys said, <laughs> except for the part about it being entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Like ultimately, I, I I still call it a dad movie, and because regardless of whether or not anybody finds that entertaining, that is still like you were saying, Lenny. Ultimately, dad. Ultimately, a dad movie. I mean, maybe part of it is that you didn't grow up with this movie, right? Yeah. Not, not really. I know I've seen it before, but I, uh, yeah, it wasn't a huge part of my life. And you did, right, Mike? I did. This was actually, I think, I think it's it remains one of the only. It definitely remains one of, um, maybe the only movie I saw before I read the book. The only other one that I can think of off the top of my head is seven of the eight Harry Potter or the nine Harry Potter movies, which is a whole other story that doesn't matter. But um, oh, you just said Harry Potter. <laughs> that just needs Harry to be Potty pointed movies. out. <laughs> yes, the Harry Potter movies. Um, the Harry Potter movies. I saw seven of the nine before I read the books, uh, which, you know, like this, like this, same level, same tier, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, I'm in the exact same boat. I, again, I'm an, I'm, a, uh, that is one of the few that I, I watched the movie before I saw the book. And I think I watched it first when I was, uh, pretty young, like in middle school, it's, it's maybe very formative for me because it's one of, I think two movies that for whatever reason were the movies that really terrified me. So it was this one and it was, um, do you guys ever see arsenic old lace? Yeah. Okay. Like those two movies were the movies that scared me in like middle school. So maybe it has a more seismic impact on my mind. (laughs) That's awesome. Those are, that, that is a scary movie to see in like middle school or or younger because it's like the old ladies just murdering random people in their house. Like it's great. (laughs) It's a good time. Um, There's there's one kind of general theme that, that we didn't talk about really at all that I, I think we should. Um, or just mention, I mean, there's not much, much to talk about, but, um, obviously this is a coming of age story. That's, that's something we mentioned, but one of the things, and maybe this is more nostalgia sort of stuff, but one of the things that really struck me this time around watching the movie is, um, the way, the way Jem is treated by this movie is really interesting because ostensibly this movie is about Scout, right? And it's about Scout kind of discovering the world, growing up in a lot of ways, but at the same time, Jem is also growing up. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of about the way Scout is watching him grow up and turn from a child into a very young man, right? Like he's, I don't know, 12, 13 when it ends. But one, one of the things that I noticed with it was the, the way the narrator works. The narrator is very much just from Scout's perspective for most of the film, but there are times when it zooms out. Scout's asleep or Scout's scouts away for, for some reason. And we get to see Jem kind of by himself. And I think the biggest moment of that is um, after uh, Mr. Huell comes and uh, threatens uh, threatens Scout in the car. Um, or Yeah, Scout is asleep. Um, Jem is awake in the back seat. And Huell is, is definitely very drunk. Um, Atticus drives Huel away and then he drives back home, you know, with Jem and Scout in the car. Atticus, Jem, and Scout drive home. They get home, they have a conversation. Scout's asleep. So Scout's been out this whole time. 
And then Atticus gets called away for some reason. Jem runs after him and he's, he's scared. He said, dad, don't, don't go. And, and Atticus says, I have to, um, or so, something like that. And then he's suddenly struck with terror. All, there's all the, the loud noises around him. Um, I think this might be kind of why, um, one of the reasons why this movie was really scary as a kid is because like all of a sudden this, this kid who, who you sort of see yourself as, as, as a boy, um, he's terrified because of all of the loud noises he's standing right in front of Boo Radley's house. And, and that's really the moment of him realizing that sense of isolation that you get as a human being, the, the distance that you have between yourself and all your fellow men that you stand kind of by yourself. Um, but then he turns and he starts running home and he sees uh, the wooden statues that Boo Radley, he doesn't know it's Boo Radley has carved them, um, but Boo Radley has, has carved for him in the tree. Um, and it, that's a, an amazing moment for him and it's something that he treasures. So there's a lot of really interesting things around that. I think it's really interesting um, that in a lot of ways, you know, it, it's, it's about scouts coming of age and that's very clear, but it's very much also about Jem's coming of age story through sort of the example of his father as being a strong man, but also the compassion of this, this guy who, who doesn't really know anything about him of, of Boo Radley um, and needing to make that connection. I thought that was really cool. I thought they did it in a really interesting way, taking uh, the narrator from being, um, you know, very focused on scout to being omniscient and, and knowing everything and then going back to it. That that's really all I wanted to say. I thought it was really cool. I really liked it. And that really hit home for me this, this watch through. Yeah. The way they have uh, both Jem and Scout, like Scout is more of a, uh, I don't know, she's more single-minded, right? She's just trying to absorb everything in her surroundings. And Jem, throughout the movie, is is trying to learn how to become a man and trying to learn how to make his imprint on it, it seems like. he's That's, um, like, he's the one always leading the kids to go wherever they're needing to go, to go to the Boo Radley house. I think he's the one that leads them to go... Uh, to the courthouse or to the jail uh, when there's a lynch mob outside. Right. Um, Like he's more interested in like trying to make his footprint. um, Unlike scout, who's literally just there to follow him along and observing almost. Well, I think, I I, I don't think it's just that. I don't think she's just an observer. She's very much an actor of her own, but um, but she doesn't do things with as much purpose. Um, I, I think you're right. Jem, Jem is seeing things as like, no, I need to be the man. I need to be the leader. Um, I need to be like Atticus and Scout is, is saying I, I need to be. Yeah. I think Scout as a character is just, she's just so impulsive, right? She, uh, Jem is always like thinking and deliberating and then acting and Scout is following. And then she does whatever the situation calls for with uh, the truth of a little girl. Um, and besides that, she's, She's just trying to make her way, <laughs> trying to figure out how, how to navigate. And where oh, yeah. you know, I think it's really like encapsulated in the ham scene. Um, the awesome hand when she, where she's stuck in the ham outfit. It's oh, yeah. like, they're going through this, this massive thing at the same time, but there, you know, there's the difference in, you know, one's older, one's the older sibling, one's the younger sibling. Um, one, one's just older. Um, she's, she's younger. Um, and so like the way they're sort of processing things is different, 
with Scout, it's like she feels like she's stuck in a hat, a ham costume. Like she doesn't really know what's going on, but she knows it's scary. And Jim is like, I know exactly what's going on. And it's very scary. And it's staring right in my face. Um, it's trying to kill me. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's all I got. Do, do you guys have anything else to, to add to Kill Mockingbird? I'm good on my end. Okay. Yeah, another guy's coming to mind. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Then I, I did have a couple uh, what if questions, what if scenarios, Ooh, so to speak. What ifs? Um, yes. If Sir Thomas, Sir Thomas More, was part of the jury in 12 Angry Men, who would he be? <laughs> <laughs> Juror number seven, definitely. He's he wants to go to see the baseball game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I okay. So juror number seven, that's uh, <laughs> he just he just he just really wants to go to the piano performance and is. <laughs> His wife Alice is waiting for him at home. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Oh, that's, that's a great. <laughs> that, that's a much different interpretation of uh, of Sir Thomas. I think. Uh, who, who do you think he is, Jesse? I, I think he's the ultra logical juror. If if you have to take his character literally, um, I'm. I was thinking about it. I'm not sure if he if he ever actually does what Henry Fonda does. I, I think he would just go the ultra logical route. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. I think he's like a combination of the two, probably. Like, he's probably more like he's not just uh, like juror number uh, eight, Henry Fonda. He's mostly heart and compassion, um, and he. Mm. he feels wrong about it and that leads him to to sort of it's like he intuits it he's an intuitive person right um whereas uh the super logical guy he's more logical yeah <laughs> um so i think that thomas more would probably be like he'd go at it from a logical route and get there uh but he'd be like no you're wrong he's <laughs> he's not guilty okay yeah he I guess that's what makes Sir Thomas so compelling in A Man for All Seasons is him just blending the two, uh, you know, both the heart and the mind so well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. What do you think, Lenny? Yeah, so I was just looking through the list. Um, honestly, I don't see him anywhere in this movie because I think, <laughs> like, I think the defining thing, at least in the movie of A Man for All Seasons, is that in every single scene, every single interaction – he just he's outclasses everyone around him. He's smarter than them. He's wittier than them. He's morally superior to them. He's just better than them in every way conceivable. Yeah, he's trying to overpower like that in Twelve Angry Men. So so he would just walk in the room and just be like, "No, I am the foreman now." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Take charge. Oh, I love it. Okay, uh, then one more what if question, and then we can move away from this. All right. What do you think Abby Hoffman would have done if he was in Sir Thomas's place? <laughs> Abby <laughs> Hoffman from Trial of the Chicago 7. He would have rioted. 
<laughs> the king's getting a divorce. Riot! <laughs> he's more like Roper, isn't he? he he's like uh, he's a hothead, right? Like Roper is, which is you know, we love hot. I, I love hotheads. Like that's great, but I think he. I think yeah. his head is on spike a lot earlier than Saint Thomas's is in this in in, in his story. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't expect anything really sane from Abby Hoffman. But the more I, the more I envision Abby Hoffman in the King's Court, it became really funny to me. <laughs> it would be amazing dancing on tables. Honestly, I think Abby Hoffman would have, be, like, if he was in Sir Thomas's position, would have probably gone and became like Henry VIII's right hand man and like the prince of the church if he could have. And then started making his own laws and theologies around. Man, that would, I think it would have been kind of funny and, and terrible if he had been in that position. That would have been amazing. That's yeah. Awesome. I mean, it's definitely a funny image. I mean, it seems like, um, in especially in the way we were talking about earlier with um, Thomas More's attitude towards the rigidity of, of laws and, and conscience, uh, Hoffman is just the polar opposite of Thomas More, where... <laughs> Whereas Thomas is trying to strictly stay within these, stay in his lane, you know, Hoffman is just do anything to get what he wants. So it seems like Thomas is, Thomas is, has a crisis and he's in this predicament only because he's a moral person and because he sticks to the rules. So Hoffman just, it wouldn't be an issue for him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's no conflict. There's no conundrum. He's just yeah. like, oh yeah, you get a divorce. You get a divorce, yeah. dude. I'm Go down for it. Can I get one? <laughs> that's, that's All right, Alice, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Jesse, do you have any more what ifs or, or let me, do you have any what ifs for, for us tonight? I'm done. No. Okay. I, I'm uh, uh, I, we're getting up here on time. Oh, sorry. What? Sorry. Uh, one thing that struck me, I, I don't know if there's much here, but, uh, it was interesting to me that in uh, A Man for All Seasons, uh, it seems like it's unique out of the four that where it seems like most of these movies are about proving innocence. Um, and it seems like in, in A Man for All Seasons, it's the one where he is actually guilty of the crime that he is uh, <laughs> that he is uh, yeah. accused of. And yeah. after he gets convicted, he confesses to the crime. Yeah. So do you think that because of his confession, the the whole the whole persecution and trial of him is justified within the framework of that law? Uh mm-hmm. no. No, because he's uh I mean he all right, he and Abby Hoffman share a similarity <laughs> in the two movies. Yes. In that they are both on trial for their thoughts. Right. <laughs> um like the thing is, Abby Hoffman is on trial for for expressing his thoughts and expressing them so like crazily. Whereas Sir Thomas, uh, like I'm trying to think of another situation where this has ever happened. Sir Thomas is on trial for not expressing his thought. That's it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, well, I it's even not, say it's not quite just that, right? Because it seems like it comes to a head partially because he doesn't sign it, but partially also because he he resigns, right? That he does separate himself from that government. So it doesn't seem like he's just simply passively refusing to 
say what he's thinking, but he is actually, um, you know, telephoning uh, what he's thinking, right? Through his resignation, through his uh, separation from the from the king's court. Um, I mean, you can guess that. You can guess that, but he's never said it. Um, and again, he's and even at best, at best, uh, him being guilty of him for thinking this, right? Uh, which he definitely did. I, I just don't think that that's not worthy of, of a death penalty. No thought, no single thought is worthy of a death penalty. If if all he does is simply to resign, to uh, decline a place, a high place in government where he he can act, that's that's not a crime. So I, I, I I'm, I'm trying. I'm not trying to defend the. I'm not <laughs> trying to justify his persecution. I, it's a more narrow question. So it seems like what happens in the trial, right, is that he gets convicted and then he gives a speech. And in his speech, he doesn't try to defend that he didn't commit the crime. He's he's simply making the point that the that the the law that he broke is not justifiable in the Constitution, the Magna Carta. It's against the laws of man and God, right? So it seems like so I'm, I'm not trying to justify how he was treated or how he was punished. Um, I guess I'm just thinking more narrowly. If you just think about it in terms of uh, sticking within the structure of a, of a system, like it seems like the way he thinks, it does seem like he broke the law, not in terms of what can be proven, but what actually is true, that he did go against the... So the king proposed a law, which was unjust, but it was a law that he broke, right? I'm trying to remember what what his actual crime that he's being accused of is. It's for it's for thinking. Is it actually for thinking that the king can't get a divorce? Is that the crime? Yeah, it uh, is treason. Yeah, he's on trial for treason right now. For the I guess it would be like he he has a stance that is considered against the king's right. So. Is he guilty of treason? I, I think the answer is no. Yeah, I mean, I think his res—I I don't think his resignation um, indicated or was able to be prosecuted because they didn't bring it against him. Cromwell didn't bring it against him, and I think that um, at least you know within the confines of the of the play and the movie, you're supposed to think like, oh no, this isn't something that that anyone would would say. You know, is is him actively saying no the king can't get a divorce uh yeah. just think about it in terms of thomas more as we talked about earlier has this has this idea that the structure of law is important and that we do need to follow laws uh because oh, the minute yeah, okay. you start questioning parts of the system the whole system crumbles so with that that just very um very basic context that that um, you need to follow the laws or suffer the consequences of breaking those laws. I guess it's tricky because it seems like certainly his confession or his speech after, because the law is almost like a thought crime thing, right? That, that yeah. you're not supposed to oppose the king. And it certainly seems like his statement after he's been found guilty almost retroactively makes him guilty <laughs> because that statement would be against that law, right? That the king is not have the right to divorce his his wife and, and remarry, uh, that he does not have the authority as as the king of, of Eng- or the the, the head yeah. of the Church of England. He doesn't refuse to sign it; he's just not signing it. Um, and it seems like if, if you t- if you took the flip side, where 
you know, someone murdered someone and then they were trying to, and they got out of it through this weird technicality. It seems like they're still morally guilty for the crime. And I wonder if within the moral framework of the laws of England, he is morally guilty of a law that is immoral. Well, I think, I mean, I think that is the point that he's making with those two contrasting lines. Um, I, I think I get it. Um, I, I think that finally what he's saying is like, no, the moral, the moral dictator here is not the laws. It's my conscience. And I will stick within the laws as far as I can. However, I will live and die by my conscience. I will go to heaven or hell by my conscience. And so, no, I don't think he, according to his conscience, he did anything wrong. He did the right thing. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's an answer to your question. Uh, but that's uh, my that's that's the answer I'm giving you. Yeah, <laughs> no, I like it. I mean, I think I, I proposed a really convoluted uh, devil's yeah. advocate that wasn't and, well thought out. Um, I think that that's a good response. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I, I do see what you're saying, and I think you know, I, I think Sir Thomas would have would have also said, you know, I'm caught. And in some ways, he kind of did with his last lines: "I die the king's good servant, but God's first, Right. Um, he's basically acknowledging that the king has the authority to do what he's doing right now, uh, but it's just that he's following something higher. Okay, so coming out of that, I, I think that what we're ready for is some some kind of big picture questions. These are huge movies. There's a lot going on with them. We could talk about them forever, and we have been talking about them forever, all of our lives, really. this is These are movies that, that have been near and dear to our hearts. Um, but, I mean... So, you know, one of the things is these, these are obviously all tied together because they're all in, in courtrooms. One of the other things is that they're all matters of conscience. They're all based upon people putting their, like kind of sacrificing themselves on the altar of their own conscience in, in every single one of these movies. Um, and they're saying, you know, despite ostracism, despite death, despite, you know, five years in prison, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I think is right, what I am convinced is right for me to do, which is really cool to see. And, and maybe it, you don't need to explain why, why we like that, but um, I kind of wanted to ask, why do we like courtroom dramas? Like, this is a huge thing. This is, a, this is an entire genre that people are like, I, I'm there. I am there for these movies, right? We love movies about lawyers. We love movies about law. We love movies where you go to court. But in real life, no one is like, I want to go to jury duty. No one is like, I love lawyers in general. They might be like, I love my lawyer and I hate all other lawyers. But we generally make a lot of jokes about how lawyers are evil. Why do we like movies about them? Uh, I think part of it, uh, I think, can kind of be traced back to something Sir Thomas More says when he says, man is to serve God in the tangles of his mind. Um, and I think the thing with about that is uh, that statement is basically saying that human beings are inclined to be intellectual and inclined to make laws and inclined to follow them. I think we get a kick out of it in a lot of ways. Once we understand them, uh, if we don't understand them, we hate them. Like, <laughs> right? Like, oh, that's... 
I mean, about when it comes to being a parent, right? You have to like sit down and explain like rules to your kids because, like, if you don't, if you just give them a rule, something to f- that they have to follow, and they don't understand, it's awful. But if I tell my daughter and explain things, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, I'll get her on my side, and she'll start enforcing it to her little brother. It's great, right? <laughs> uh, so like once you I think we just get a kick out of understanding laws and then even more so I think people generally like interweaving laws that that are different like the thing about courtrooms is you always have the prosecutor and the defense right and uh they're always looking at two different sides of the same coin and so it's it's cool to see the the intersection of that and how these different strands of laws all interact with each other, and how ultimately at the heart of all this cold, hard law machinery, you always have a human conscience on the inside because laws are were always are always made for people, or at least always are supposed to be, and it's always bringing in the human element of that. I, I don't know how many reasons I just listed. I think I listed at least two for those reasons. For those two. Re- uh, I so think it's, like it's, it's intellectual. We're, we're drawn to them because they're very intellectual and they, they make law into something that we can understand. They, they show it to us so that we can understand it. And uh, so, I, so I got that one. And the other one, if you can boil it down, uh, the other like one, it's rude because I, I'm, I'm not sure I got, quite got it. Right. So the other point would be, I think courtroom dramas kind of help us understand the law and they help us show where human conscience meets law. Um, And again, I think part of the thrill of watching a courtroom drama is starting to understand a whole system because most of the time I don't, most of the time I don't know what really goes on in courtrooms because I, I don't spend my time. I'm not a lawyer. Um, So I get a thrill out of watching something like that. That's way different and outside my experience and that I get to be exposed to and be part of. And that is currently part of my life, but I find very boring, which is why I don't go to jury duty. I'm sorry. I do. (laughs) I I just never want to. (laughs) It's Lenny. You're the one that doesn't go to jury duty, right? (laughs) Amazing. That's amazing. Do, do, is that do do you agree with that, Letney? Do you think that that that's why why we like movies like this? They're um, I had slightly different. Uh, so I guess my my reasons like moving from the most surface and mundane to the most you know profound or whatever. Um, it seems like on the surface we we do like courtroom dramas uh, for the same reason we like military movies and CSI because we like genres with a lot of jargon. You know, like <laughs> objection, defense rest, you know, overruled. Yeah, I wish I could go around in my life and be like, objection, overruled. Yeah, yeah so I think we like uh, we like these systems that we like don't fully understand, but have a lot of cool sounding jargon. Uh, so I think that's kind of service level. It seems like it's not just justice that, that appeals to us about this. Because it seems like if you took the case of, of like someone who went into a bank to rob it and then got caught, that would not be an interesting case. Right, if there was clear evidence they did it. To me, it seems like the the appealing thing that we find in courtroom dramas uh, is is the pursuit of the truth. That that often it's very complex, and there's there's arguments from both sides, and 
justice system in its purest form, just kind of dispassionately um, reasoning through and presenting evidence almost in a scientific way uh, to try to find out what actually happened in this very high stakes situation. So I guess that, that kind of uh, aligns with what Jesse was saying about complexity and about uh, about reasoning and and uh, the, the intellectual side of, of courtroom dramas. I think I think that that makes sense. That that definitely resonates with with what I was thinking. Another thought that I have was like it seems like most of these movies present kind of a David and Goliath situation, and most of the courtroom movies that that we know and love well. And I mean, just like. I don't know. I love David and Goliath stories. Like everyone, I think everyone does like the small, the small guy going against, you know, against the justice system system, basically. Um, I think in all of these, in all of these situations, except for maybe um, the 12, 12 angry men, although there is something there. Henry Fonda is kind of like, you know, the man in the arena who's been confronted with the other 11 jurors um and then he takes them down one by one there's almost I, I feel like it's almost um it's almost like uh like gladiators man um in a lot of ways there's a lot there's i mean isn't that true like aren't there a lot of beats to these movies that are like a gladiator sort of battle where you've got the guy who's going against uh you know whatever whatever the defense is saying i mean it's it's almost like the modern day gladiator i don't know Maybe that's yeah, yeah. You have the, the prosecutor in defense, like the two sides, and then you have the jury, which is like the crown, and the judge, which is Caesar, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down. I don't know. I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm totally thinking about Russell Crowe in, in the Gladiator movie from 2000 right now. He's the best. You know, new brand new idea for, for a show, right? So, like a real TV show, we just set up a courtroom where somebody's life is on the line. And then we, and then we bring in friends <laughs> of prosecution, and they just argue it out. I would watch that all day. I wouldn't be proud I of myself for watching it, but I would watch it. Dude, I would watch that all day too. Like, I I feel like you couldn't not. Right, OJ Simpson is an example of that because that was all televised. Yeah, that's right. This actually happened before. Oh shit. <laughs> okay. I love courtroom movies. I love courtroom dramas. They're they're amazing. I think we all do. I think that's good. Like that's a good idea there. I know we're going to revisit this more um, too as we go along. We've got a couple of uh, I'm sure we've got a, like not your father's courtroom dramas because this is grandfather's courtroom dramas. So we'll come back and revisit and and take a look again. But uh, I think we're ready to to go to the last little thing that Jesse. I know you really wanted to ask, um, and I've been like thinking about this whole time. I want to ask you guys. What is the best dad movie of all these movies? Um, oh. uh, yeah. So we've called three out of the four dad movies. Uh, I think Letney would call four out of the four dad movies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, so I, I have a list. Um, my list would be. Uh, in terms of just in terms of quality of movie and how much it's going to impact me and what I watch with my kids, I think it's Twelve Angry Men and A Man for All Seasons. Um, I, with Twelve Angry Men being at the top, or maybe even tied with A Man for All Seasons, in my opinion. Um, 
And then it's To Kill a Mockingbird below that with uh, Trial of the Chicago 7. Settling at the bottom there. (laughs) Uh, But 12 Angry Men, I think, would get the crown of the best dad movie of all not your grandfather's courtroom dramas. How about you, Mike? I think, I mean, I want to do something different because then it would be different. But um, I, I think I have to say the same thing. I mean, it, 12 Angry Men, I think uh, of all these movies, it's definitely the best. Um, I think everyone acknowledges it as the best. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing. Everything that happened after it is partially due to it. Um, it's something that people talk about every day in America. Yeah, let's, let's just assume it is. Yeah, A Man for All Seasons is definitely a close second to that and To Kill a Mockingbird, a close third in terms of like, which one is the best? But then in terms of order of like, I don't know, if I put it in another order, if I put it in an order of like what I, I think will be a comfortable movie for my kids, something that I want them to have comfort and familiarity with. Um, I think I might go, I'd flip up the order a little bit. I'd start with a man for all seasons, go to, to kill a mockingbird and then end with 12 angry men. Um, and the reason why is that 12 angry men, I think it's just such an achievement of a movie. And, and I think I said this on the podcast, it almost feels bad to say like, Oh, this is a dad movie. Cause it's, it's, it is, it's a movie that a dad watch, but it's a movie that every single person should watch and should think is incredible. I think everyone does. Um, so it's almost like, because it's, it's, it's almost like a level above in, in my estimation. Um, so in that perspective, in terms of like dad movie, dad movies, I'd say it's not the top because it's better. It's, it's, it's higher than that highest laurel of dad movie in my mind. I, you know what? I, I object because you can't get higher. <laughs> fair, fair. I know. I know. There we go. <laughs> Lenny, what about you? Uh, well, so I guess it depends whether we're talking about what's the ultimate dad movie or what's the best courtroom drama. Because I think that <laughs> if we're just talking about the trilogy – 12 Hungry Men is the only real courtroom drama in my mind. Because I think that A Man for All true. Seasons and um, A Man for All Seasons and To Kill a Mockingbird are basically farce trials where the decision has already been determined before the trial starts. Where there's obviously, you know, in the case of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, there's an obviously biased, closed minded jury that is never going to, you know, exonerate a black man. And then obviously, you know, in uh, A Man for All Seasons, that the, the you know, the, the judges are decided by the King and they've already made the decision. Um, so it seems like to me it, for a quorum ranking, it's, it's obviously um, it's a 12 argument at the top and then maybe the next two tied. But in terms of ultimate movie overall, dad movie. Yeah. I mean, I think I would have to say a man for all scenes would be at the top for me. Just, I think it's just such a flawless tight movie. Um, and he's just, a dad. And he's a dad. Yeah. <laughs> Although, again, so so if we're framing in terms of dad movies, I kind of feel like A Kill It Mockingbird is the ideal dad movie because it's so much about being a father and about yeah. forming kids and about life lessons. So maybe that's the top. So I, I don't have a clear order. <laughs> well, <laughs> again, I have 12 Angry Men at the top. Uh, 
because it was formative for me watching it growing up. So I want to pass that on to my kids. So in that sense, it's a dad movie. Uh, The other two are more about being a dad in a lot of ways. And, you know, well, while that is great and it's important for my kids to see, I, I generally just hope that they're going to see that from me. Uh, Whereas 12 Angry Men is something I can't ever just illustrate for them coming straight from myself. Like they need to watch that movie in order to experience it. And the same can be said both for uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and A Man for All Seasons to some degree. But like 12 Angry Men is not even something I can really just talk them through. They just have to experience it. Well, we just had uh, three wildly different answers. Uh, <laughs> including uh, I don't know what the hell I'm saying from from let me just <laughs> I love it Twelve Angry Man is the ultimate courtroom movie okay uh, A Man for All Seasons is the ultimate movie <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is the ultimate dad movie there we go. That's a very yeah. clear okay, answer. You know what? Wow. We went from being like really, really unclear to being clearer than I think I, clearer than I was. <laughs> yeah, that's clear. Uh, with with Trial of Chicago Seven just off the list completely. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I might watch that someday, but. So guys, I I think um, I I think that that that's about it. Unless do either of you guys have anything anything else to add? Uh, this was some great big courtroom energy. Uh, I'm glad we're done with this, though. I'm glad we're moving on to bigger and better things. Yeah, bigger Maybe and better not. things that Maybe are alone. Yeah, that are alone. At alone. Home. Yeah, yeah. Christmas special. Christmas special to come next week, and then we've got some some other things coming up um, in the new year in our uh, upcoming season. I guess we're we're splitting this into seasons now. We've got season one. Uh, wrapping up at the end of this year in season two, beginning in January of 2021. If in February, I don't know when we're beginning it. Oh, it's, Time is it's January. Um, okay. Yeah. Because, uh, because it's season two and the difference between season one and season two is that season two will be different. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be in January. It's going to be in 2021. If, if there is a 2021, we still don't know. Um, the actual like world season hasn't quite been released yet. So we'll find out soon. Yeah. We don't even know if the writers are going to keep going after 2020. Yeah. I, I don't know. I've used all their ideas for this one year. This is like that one season of game of Thrones, man. Everything at once. Right. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, these were some wonderful movies. We loved watching them. We're excited to at some point come back to courtroom dramas and grandfather, not your grandfather's movies. Um, But for now, I think that's all we got on these movies. So from everyone here at not your father's movies, I'm Mike. I'm Jesse. I'm Whitney. And you have a wonderful night. Hey everyone. This is Mike from not your father's movies. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got any questions on tonight's episode, thoughts on movies that should or should not be in the dad canon, and most importantly, things Vito got wrong, we'd literally love to hear from you. 
Shoot us an email with anything you got at notyourfathersmovies at gmails.com. That's notyourfathersmovies at gmail.com. And if that's not enough for you and you want more ways to listen to us, reach us, share us, and support us, check out our website at nyfm.podbean.com. That's nyfm.podbean.com. Shout out to Max Agros for our sick theme music. Thank you, Max, and thank you all again for listening to us. Have a great night. 